everyone, welcome back to the Book and Life podcast. Today we're going to have a brand new book guest on. Whether they're an author, an editor, a producer, you'll never quite know, so you're in for one hell of a ride. But today I just have to uh, do the adverts and then I'll get us straight into that most important conversation. And as as we do every week, um, I'm going to read The Shadow which is part of the Time Guardian series, and this is book four from Marianne Curley. The battle is over, the war is won. The prophecy complete, but life can't just pick up where it left off for Ethan, struggling to cope with tragic loss. At odds with friends in the guard, he finds himself adrift, jumping in shadows and sensing someone who can't possibly be there. Blaming herself for the goddess Athena's death, Giselle swears revenge to fullify the immortal's plan for world domination, but Giselle hadn't planned on love, and that leaves her with an unbearable choice. Should she follow her heart, or the strings of a goddess short on praise but high on expectation, who continues to pull her from the grave? As the guard and the order battles through the past and into an impossible future, darkness looks round every corner. The fight for the world's survival rests with just one. Is it friend or foe who stands in the shadow? And just a reminder that The Price of Freedom by Rosemary Aiken, sorry, Rosemary Rowan, um, is being donated to the Ukraine refugee crisis. And here's the blurb for her book. It's uh, one of her... Roman British crime series, which was written under her maiden name. All editions can be found online where all books are sold, even her agents donating her commission. Sorry, I don't have the blurb for that, but uh, that's that's what she's doing. And now, without further ado, let's get you to the guests. We have a honest to God will be a trailblazing writer who's going to uplift you, make you think, and is going to make you fall in love with characters all over again. You are not going to want to miss this guest. I promised you a doozy last week. She is it. I hope I don't screw up her name because I've been too excited. I have probably had way too much caffeine this morning preparing for this. So please, everyone, welcome Kara Noddy. Nod? Did I get it right? (laughs) Almost. Almost. If you thought it right, you would have been the first person in the history of the universe. So that would have been absolutely fine. (laughs) If you don't know me, I'm from Shetland. So I grew up with Nordic, Danish, Russian, Shetland dialect is all that, right? Plus Scottish. And then they ask you to learn English when you hit, like, primary seven. That's a lot. So, yeah, like, the whole trying to remember all these different things is a nightmare. Funnily enough, our our surname is is apparently Nordic in origin. The the G-N, the silent G. Well, yeah, I saw that. It apparently has some Nordic 
Nordic origin. I, I haven't really been able to dig it out, but that's what I gather. But uh, funny when you say that, because there were so many Vikings, particularly the northern Viking groups that settled sort of in South Africa and over into the Middle East, that they're only now just tracking down where they went. That's interesting. Well, these that. Vikings will have come via Europe because the Noda surname came yeah. via Holland. But oh, right. Yes, so, so they all live in the world. even more connected to the royal line, the Danish royal line, than <laughs> It's, yeah, it's funny it. because the, the Nordic line itself for the Danish group, they splintered into something like 36 different clans and they went all over the world. So some are actually in America, some are in Canada, but they were able to trace a small group to South Africa and into the Middle East. So that's kind of... That is yeah. interesting. That must, in Shetland, that... we like to know where all the Vikings go. It's kind of like this weird obsession. It's like first things where you're trying to track everybody's bloodline to make sure you're not related. <laughs> well, what you're telling me is that we've probably got relatives in South Africa that we don't know are relatives because they exactly. would have gone directly there and our lot came via Europe. Although I married my surname. It wasn't oh, okay. mine to Yeah, start you off. probably do have relatives in South Africa because what they were doing at that time was because the clans were so big, they were trying to find new places to settle these people so that they could continue keeping the clans alive so that they wouldn't kill each other. And they were hoping that these trading posts... Now, this is what's not really kind of actually known about Vikings because they loved trading. And even though they would conquer places, they would set up these, these sort of little communities and they were trading posts. So some would stay there and keep that community going wow. while sending others back with goods. And that was something they did a lot of. So when you, when you see like gold threads, for instance, being in tapestries, those have come from Africa, Middle East, India, all these places that Vikings are not generally associated with gone, but they can actually trace Vikings to most continents because they they really did land hop. It was like, oh, okay, I find a bit of land. Oh, I'll go a bit further, and and they would go as far as they could go till their supplies ran out. Then they would get new supplies and they would go back, and that's just what they did. That's and amazing, and you're right. The the trading part is completely underestimated, and yeah. I, I feel I mean, another. I, no, I feel a novel coming on. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I I grew up in the Viking history where it's just drilled into your head from like yeah. birth that you know Vikings are not evil. We did not just kill people. We did all this other stuff, um, and they were very smart and they were very inventive. And a lot of like the technology you see in ships came from descendants of Vikings, because anybody knew how to sail the roughest seas in the world it was them because if you think about where they all originated from the north sea was hella dangerous absolutely and and you know i mean the, the they were demonized by the catholic church originally and then history kind of followed the lead of the victors if you if yeah. you want to put it that way yeah but the amount of vikings that actually sort of found ways to hide in plain sight were the ones that kept their lines going. 
so the ones that were pretending with the Knights Templars to be, oh yes, we're on your side, and they were secretly just trying to survive, surviving keep their bloodlines and families alive, and that that's what they did, and a lot of them did flee to countries like Africa because the Knights Templars found it so much harder to track them, to get hold of them, and even in the Middle East as well, yeah, and. And that's something people don't realize is that that's where they went because they needed to hide. Um, and a lot of them hid in Scotland. Very interesting. Yeah. Wow. I wish I could actually use all this Viking stuff they've given me over the decades, but. Yeah, but you, but you, you, you should. It's riveting. It's a proper yeah. story. It's so, it's got such narrative power. Yeah, it's, it's it's so funny because I, I wrote a Viking novel, but I did it in plain English so that everybody could read it. And the amount of people that say, oh, but it doesn't tie into the period and the, the, the language isn't the same. I did it so that it wouldn't ostracize every normal day readers. And I did it on the idea that there is Viking royalty that is still hidden to this day. And that was the design of the book, was to say, these Viking princesses got away, but nobody knows where they are. And they're they still out there somewhere. Yeah. Oh, that's very juicy. There. I think you should carry on. <laughs> yeah, so maybe one day we'll find a place for yeah. it, and I will send you a copy saying, we yeah, will. we did it. <laughs> but we please, will. tell us about your book, because I'm a huge rom-com fan, and this screams rom-com to me. And it sounds so uplifting, and I love anything with siblings in it. So you kind of ticked all my boxes, um, and your book arrived two days ago. So I haven't gotten a chance to read it, but it is on the very top of my pile, and I am diving into it very, very shortly. So we will well, be doing a spotlight event for your review. So yeah, please tell us all about it. Fantastic. Well, I'm intrigued that um, I'll be very intrigued once you've read it to hear whether that's what you still think it is. There's been lots of discussion about <clears throat> whether it fits into a rom-com mold or not. Um, personally, I'm not sure it does. I, what, I, what I love about rom-coms is that they deliver on certain beats with, yeah. with uh, certainty. And you know that that's what they're going to do. And you have that wonderful expectation of what you're going to get and then the delivery of that expectation. And... Well, I'll be surprised to hear what whether you think that the theory of not quite everything meets those, um, because that because isn't how it's written. <clears throat> yeah, like rom-coms is changing, and I yeah. think that's what people maybe aren't necessarily aware of, is that rom-coms are trying to cover more different kinds of beats. So I think that's good, because we had the 90s rom-coms, which we all know and love, which was like Bridget Jones and, and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and they had that very set routine but now you're actually seeing rom-coms that are coming into play that are very very different but are still giving us that comedy that upbeat and that really great rom romantic story but we do get a, we are seeing more sibling rivalries we're seeing more sibling fights to kind of in there and I think that's really great, especially if you've gotten a chance to see sort of Shotgun Wedding, Jennifer Lopez's new one. That is a different kind of rom-com. And that's the new generation of the ones that are coming out. 
and she said great success with that and Mari who was the other one she had a great success with so these are the new kind of ones that are coming forth and to be honest I, I work with a lot of producers and directors and stuff and your book really does fit that kind of mold of what they're looking for moving forward into what they call the new era of, of romantic comedies well I am it's going to be a very interesting journey having this conversation. Obviously, I'm right at the beginning, and you're one of the first people I've sat down with who's yeah. looking at it from a professional point of view, apart from my publishers, and and has a sort of outsider's perspective on it. Um, yeah. And it doesn't hit the rom-com beats, but hopefully it is romantic, and, and hopefully it's funny. It's not hilarious laugh out loud the whole way through funny, um, you know, somebody like Marion Marion Keynes is so brilliant because her books are actually deadly serious and deadly, you know, put you on the floor funny. And my book isn't isn't like that. The the humor is probably you know lighter. It's it's not laugh out loud the whole way through, but there's a sort of light touch. And the reason it needed that is because I also deal with some pretty dark themes and I take them on quite head on. Um there's a sort of underpinning of the story is probably not the romantic story. There is a romantic story, and that is the plot that drives the whole thing. But underneath it, there's a pretty sad family story that needs resolution. So it's also different in the sense that you can almost read it in, in two different ways. But I think it is going to be really fun to talk to people about exactly this issue. Like, where does it fit in? What I know that in your previous podcasts, you've chatted to people about genre and where they see their books fit in. And I don't know how, I don't know if you like genre-bending books. I like genre-bending books. I do, and, I do. And, but that's what you're saying, right? You're saying that this genre is busy being bent and that that's a good thing. I'm I'm all for it. I love nothing better than a book that you 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 know what you're getting and then you get it and that's fabulous. But I also like being surprised, taken by surprise halfway through starting something and it's different from what my expectations were. Um, and I would say this book might be one of those. I've actually just started a book um, called Matrix by Lauren Goff. Wow. Okay. Um, she's an American, quite a young American author. <clears throat> she's been very successful. I think she's been up for the National Book Circle Award and all those sorts of things. Um, and I was, Matrix said to me something maybe slightly sci-fi, maybe something mathematical, which is why it intrigued me. Of course, yeah. And it's about um, nuns living in France and England hundreds of years ago. It couldn't be further from what I was expecting if it tried. And I loved that. I loved I opened it and I thought, what? What? And I, I read a bit and, and it just was so different from what I was expecting. So I like my expectations being a bit turned upside down, but it remains to be seen whether readers will feel that. Let's see. See, I, I loved the idea of your book because as soon as I read the blurb of it, I was like, this is not quite how they're going to sell this. I had that feeling of this is a this is a genre bending book, like you said, and I'm like, I I was curious to see how they were going to push it, 
So when the press release came out, I was like, I'm, I'm curious to see where they're going to take this because publishers, they do like to stick it in a nice little box with a nice little roll, you know, bow on it and so they know where it belongs. And being an author myself who's bent the rules far too many times, yeah, you know, people, I, I get that a lot where people say, I don't know where your book fits, so I don't know if we're in the right place for you. So I get the kind of balancing act you had to do on that. And the reason that I love sibling books is because I have twin sisters who turn on each other. They have their own separate love triangles. But oh, wow. yet at the same time, there's a romantic story there of who's Marie going to end up with and who's Layla going to choose? And can the sisters mend fences? Can this family be brought back together when the family's been based on secrets and lies from the very beginning. Well, that is a real, that is a real story. And you see, when you yeah. when you describe that, that doesn't sound like a rom com to me. Although I get that there's a romantic beat in it. Yeah. So, do you want to hear? If you haven't read it, do you want me to describe what it is about? Exactly, because I know that the listeners will be foaming at the mouth by this point. <laughs> um, right. So. It's about, at its heart, a pair of siblings called Art and Mimi. Mimi is the long-suffering sister of her older brother, Art, who is a genius mathematician. And the two of them lost their parents in adolescence in tragic circumstances, which we don't know at the beginning of the book. And since then, which is you know, more than a decade previously, Mimi has devoted her life to art entirely. And she's really given up on her own hopes and dreams in order to support her brother, who's quite needy and quite demanding, although very, very beloved. And they really are very attached to one another in a profoundly lovely way. But she decides that it is time that she had more of her own life. And you know, instantly you can feel that this is going to unsettle their relationship. And she goes to Art and asks him for his help. And he agrees that he, it was time she probably tried to find somebody else in her life, but that she has to do it through a carefully constructed mathematical plan that he helps her with. And I don't know if I'm giving too much away. No, you're not. You're <laughs> um, not. They'll anyway, be, be it, doesn't go according, it doesn't go according to the mathematical plan. That's what you really need to know. And their relationship is very severely tested. Um, she, um, a man does appear in her life who you know, she thinks she loves. And so there's that romantic element, the falling in love, the how does the, the, how does the relationship develop, the will they, won't they. And then there's this love triangle because the brother is unsure about the whole thing. And he's very deeply unsure. And underneath it all is how the siblings relate to their tragic past and what impact that has on them now and it's going to have on them in the future and there's something to be resolved of course and the underpinning story as well as in the romantic story um and that's where the book takes you to to both of those stories at the same time the flashbacks but into their to me, childhood that's a real story that right um, there is a real story and I think 
there's going to be so many listeners who are going to get behind this just because it's a real story. Because if we think about it, our lives aren't logical, right? No. We can't, we cannot run our, our lives by math, no matter how much math does dictate our lives with spending and everything else. But our hearts are completely illogical be- things. And when it comes to family and perspective and relationships, that in itself is what all of us deal with on a daily basis. We all have a sibling where we're like, I could strangle them. Because despite of whether you have parents or you don't, siblings tend to raise each other. We impact each other, we lean on each other, we have those bonds. Even if you don't talk to each other anymore, you're still aware of where they are, what they're doing, and everything else. Absolutely. So this, to me, is is a book that's going to go across every walk of life. Whether it's a young person who's like, I could really just throw something at my sibling really heavy and just (laughs) whack him around the head with it, which I have felt quite frequently myself. To somebody that's older who's got a really long relationship with their siblings where they constantly feel like they're still the parent of this, you know, this sibling and they wish that they would, you know, just wake up and and grow up and, and, and do certain things. So there's everybody who will love this book. And I can see a lot of young men also wanting to read it because it does tie in with that group of people who young men nowadays are reading more and they're wanting to get a much wider perspective on life. Yeah. And I think this will also hit them. I I honestly see if this is not a bestseller by next year, I will be 100% surprised. I would I, I would lay money on that. I hope that you still think that when you've read it. <laughs> I, I don't think it's going to change my opinion because normally if I can pick this is a, this is an inside, you know, insider secret here, but most authors, when we pick up stuff, because of the way our brains work, we can pick out how certain stories will go, which is why I struggle with Milk and Boone, because I can pretty much guarantee I know how a story is going to play out before I even read it. But with yours, there's so many different ways it could go that my author brain can't, you know, thread it out and figure it out. And those are the books that I tend to love the most because those are the ones I can just get swept away in and I don't need to think and my little brain isn't going, we could go this way or they could go, it just gets to relax. And there's so few books out there nowadays, you know, for us published authors that we can actually just genuinely enjoy without seeing the roadmaps. But yeah, I think yours will be a five out of five. Well, I, I hope so. I, um, I agree with you that the sibling relationship is, is one of the most interesting in the world. And most, of us have, most of us have siblings. And there is something brutally honest about sibling relationships, isn't there? That, that your siblings can, maybe because they just know you're never going to go away, that you're always going to be there anyway. And they can tell you sort of the brutal truth. I, I was talking to somebody about it the other day, and I described it as they they're most able to sort of hold a mirror up to yourself that you know is true. Yeah. And the worst thing Uh, is we see all our bad qualities in our siblings. Yeah. And they see all theirs in us. (laughs) 
you know, and it, it that's just the kind of way that it works. I mean, even the kids that don't have siblings, they have that one person in their lives, whether it's a cousin, a best friend, somebody they've spent their entire lives growing up with that just has this god-awful way of, of making them remember their faults. They're pressing saying, their buttons. Yeah, and pressing their buttons and saying, hey, look, you've got a history of doing on. this or you've got a history of doing that. You know, and, and it, it does. And I think it's so important. And that's why I love sibling-based stories. I, I just yeah. adore them. I, I must say, I completely agree with you. The other thing that I find fascinating about them is that as siblings, you've got this common history. And, you you know, if something big has happened, you've got that shared experience of something traumatic or something fantastic. And so everyone assumes that that's what you share. But in fact, everyone comes at those things from such a different place and they process them very differently and the impact is completely different on their lives. So I love the fact that you can look at the same event back through these different but shared lenses. I think that's a really interesting thing about siblings. And that's what I've done in the book. It's written from Mimi's point of view and from Art's point of view. So you see... And I did see that. And I love shared, that. The shared um, view, but but also the separate internal view, which I, I like that in, in all the sibling relationships. I was excited when I saw the two perspectives. Because I had to flick through. And I was like, ah, she's gold. <laughs> it's so much more difficult if you've got a third person perspective or a, just a, a one person perspective because you always want to know what's well, what's going on in that other person's mind what's, what are they feeling, what are they doing so I think you, you offer what I call a 3D character model and that's not used very often and so when I see it I get excited because I started in wrestling where characterizations and 3D characters are the only way wrestling works. So you have to not only come up with a story that shows both of the wrestlers and both motivations, yeah. but then you also have to get these two very difficult people to agree to do what you need them to do. Exactly. You know, and, and that's kind of why I started writing wrestling themes in my book because yeah. people don't realize just a it's male dominated so the amount of women writers in wrestling is below it now that stephanie mcmahon's left it is probably one out of like tens of thousands of writers wow so that ceiling exists in there and my books was a kind of a nudge to them to say hey open up and i think yours is a nudge in a different way of yours is nudging and breaking through and saying hey let's have more real stories but they can have these romantic backdrops they can have all these other elements to them let's wedge that door open a little bit further and see where it takes us and that's what I love. When I get writers like that on my show, I am the happiest person in the world because anybody that's just pushing that door of new possibilities open to me is is gold. And there's not many of us around, so. Well, it's always hard to judge for yourself if you've done something new, but 
and I didn't set out to do something new. So let's see how it's, let's see how it's judged out there. I don't know. <laughs> but your bio, like when, when I read your bio, you've had such a unique journey and you've had the ability to live in so many places that it's really amazing to me that this is this is your debut book but to me i think i'm going to see a lot more well-rounded door pushing stories from you going forward i don't normally nominate authors that i'll watch but you are on that list of authors i'm going to watch moving forward. thank you crystal thank you very much that's incredibly incredibly kind of you to say that thank you yeah i mean because when i think of your, your journey yourself that has to have played a role in creating this novel. Would you agree with that? I think that when you've lived in a lot of different countries, what you really do start to appreciate is how being human is the same everywhere. I mean, we, we all know that. I mean, that, that isn't a new idea, but it is very easy to other other people from other places in your head and in your mind and watching TV. But when you live somewhere where everyone is different from you in some obvious way, and yet the issues that we all face every day, day in, day out, are pretty much identical, and yeah. people respond with love or joy or laughter or anger or fury or jealousy, in exactly the same way all over the world. I think that does penetrate in a way that it can't when you've only lived in one place. It exactly. sinks in at a sort of cellular level. And But I really don't claim to understand people any better than anybody else. But to the extent that our journey around the world impacted the book, I would say there's that, that the... the the human story is is pretty universal, and, and I so I, I hope that it, at its base, it's a quite a, it's a very human story. It is, and I think it's living in all these places has given you a unique perspective, because it's you've been able to sort of, whether we admit it or not, authors we are very much we soak up our environments. We absolutely do, and we soak up how people talk and how they interact with each other. And that helps us build these very unique, well-rounded characters. Yeah. And that's what excites me about yours, because it, it's a character-driven story. I think the one way in which it really did impact um, the story is that Mimi and Art's family, the Brotherton family, moved. They, they moved from South Africa. So it's not a South African novel at all. Obviously, you can hear I'm originally from South Africa. Yeah, of course. And there are there are moments of of South Africa in their childhood in the book, but there it's a very light South African touch. But the important yeah. thing is that the family moved to England, and so they were one a displaced family. They weren't from here. They weren't rooted here, and I wanted that slight sense of otherness to be around them to have so that they weren't just isolated as a pair because they lost their parents. They were also isolated because the family culture was <clears throat> just ever so slightly different from the people around them, which is the case for so many people, especially in London, which is where it's based. And it's um, culture. I think it is the culture center of the UK because <clears throat> everybody that's coming from countries all over the world 
at some point they've all started in London. Yeah. Or just from someone else, somewhere else in the UK. Even if you've just come yeah. from another part of the UK, north, south, if you've landed up in London, you're somewhere new. And living yeah. somewhere new is is it it really does come with its challenges. So I guess that that did impact the story a bit. And with your with your experience is it's the experience of the characters. You've got this culture that they've grown up with that they know and that they're intimately kind of unaware of that they they cling to because that's what they've grown up with and now they're in london which by the way will be a culture shock at any point and it's a totally different world and now it's almost like they've got to learn the rules of a totally different world yes well. so this that, that's what happened to their parents they came very very young but their parents had that culture shock and that does then yeah. cast a shadow on on what happens to the family so you're right my moving around the world and yeah. being new probably did affect the story more than one even realizes yeah yeah and i love the psychology that us as authors we don't always realize what we're putting in to it but psychology is so important for characters because that's how you make a good character is getting in their heads understanding how they're brains are working and that also makes us understand how they feel and we can then put that on paper and deliver something truly special so i i agree completely excited about yours Great. i am curious about the inspiration of it because it, i believe in the press release it said it came from just a radio show so the inspiration inspiration is such a funny thing isn't it it's yeah. uh it always sounds so certain when someone talks about their inspiration, like they were given a bolt of lightning from above, and it just doesn't. It doesn't happen to me like it that. It doesn't work like that. No, it, no I, I can tell. Retrospectively, I can tell you exactly what the inspiration was, but I didn't know it at the time. Yeah. Um, but I, I can tell you now. So the first thing was I just finished a course in brain and behavior, which sounds like something you would enjoy. Of course, um, yes. <laughs> and psychological assessment. I did a year of courses and that kind of thing and I recently learned about a special kind of psychological assessment questionnaire that had a series of questions and depending on how you'd answered those specific questions the person looking at your answers could tell how much you were lying so it had an inbuilt lie detector because there's certain things that we all do yeah and they ask those questions and if you lie about all of them then they know that there's a certain level of lying going through the whole questionnaire and I thought that was absolutely fascinating. Um, anyway, I parked that idea and it was obviously bubbling away somewhere because yeah. one afternoon I sat down to write a, sec a scene and I just was, I was busy writing an independent scene every day. That was sort of my challenge to myself was to be writing something fresh and different every day. And I sat down and I was suddenly writing about a brother and sister called Mimi and Art. They were Mimi and Art right from the beginning. And yeah. she was filling in psychological questionnaire online and he came into the room and the sun was coming through the window and he looked over her shoulder and he could see that she was lying and the thing was that yep. he understood why and that the root of her lies was something sad yep. and that was all I knew at that moment she was sitting in a chair that had wheels in it and she sped across the kitchen when he challenged her about her lie and sort of flicked on the kettle and he didn't like that. He didn't like the noise and the wheels on the kitchen floor and the wheels next to the kettle. So 
he was sensitive to noise and a little bit of danger. There was something about him that was a little prickly. And that was all I learned about them that day. And I put them aside. And the next day I wrote about something different. And then I was, they didn't quite go away, the this, this sibling pair. They hovered in my mind. And a little while later, I was driving along and I heard this radio program. It was yeah. Melvin Bragg, In Our Time, which is, I don't know, have you, do you ever listen to Melvin Bragg, In Our Time? I've, I've heard it, yeah, with my, my parents-in-law whenever they drive me, because I can't drive. Yeah, so a lot of the so time, I don't understand what on earth they're talking about. I don't it's either. Quite, I usually it's very highfalutin. <laughs> yeah, I, I normally sit there scratching my head, and then I have to ask my father-in-law, like, what are they talking about? What were they on about, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, nevertheless, this day they were talking about this maths problem called P versus NP, which could apparently, if solved, completely overnight change the world. Yeah. And the mathematician who solved it could win a million dollars because it's part of the Clay Institute's seven millennial problems. Yeah. But, uh, and I didn't understand what they were saying about it, but I, what I did get was change the world overnight, a million dollars, very difficult, insoluble problem. And I just knew that was art's life obsession. And mm -hmm. I had what he was. He was a mathematician who was obsessed, obsessed with this problem. And it was perfect because it had rabbit warreny thing. It actually impacts lots and lots of different things in our daily lives. So that was really nice. It had this million dollar prize, which it just sounded intriguing. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so that was that was a major part of, of the inspiration for the novel because the whole idea of it underpins the novel in a sort of very, very, very subtle way. Um, and then the third thing was this issue about siblings, which I've given a lot of thought to. I, I think if I had to point to a moment of inspiration, it would be listening to... <clears throat> um, sorry. Oh, you're fine. Listening to... Sigrid Rasing talking about her life as the sibling of an addicted brother. Yeah. And I remember listening to her also on the radio talking about her. She wrote a book called Mayhem, which yeah. was what it was like to be that child in the family of, of a very demanding, addicted child. And I was intrigued by the point of view of that sibling in every family. There's, you know, there's always the very demand. There's often a, one very demanding sibling in a family. The, you know, whether they're, you know, addicted to something or a genius mathematician like art or they not well or Artists whatever it is. tend to be like that, yeah. Um, and I thought the, the, other per, the other sibling, you know, what happens to them when all the, all the oxygen in the family is going to, not going to them? So that was, those are the three planks, I think, of inspiration that, that I feel drove the novel, novel to where where it got to, or actually where it started, I suppose. And I love that, because I grew up where me and my brother fought for the air, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah. I was the, the demanding child where I had a long-term illness, and he was the creative, artistic, awkward, very sensitive to the world child. So yeah. it was almost like our family was split in two for for 18 years you know um i always felt for my mother and father because my brother when he was born was hyperactive and he didn't sleep for more than two hours at a time oh my goodness so can you imagine for five years they did that 
And that was before I came around. I came around and then they thought, you know, I actually slept. I wanted to sleep. And they would come in and they would poke me to be like, is she dead? You know, (laughs) is this a normal kid? Like, well, I was till I was two and a half. But yeah, so for my parents, it was like, go, 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 go. Right from the very beginning. From the get-go. Yeah. And of course, I was artistic, but I was dyslexic. So me and my mom had that really close bond because she was dyslexic. She had that struggle. I had that struggle, but they couldn't. I lived in such a rural place where funding wasn't there. Yeah. So they couldn't really help me with it. And then, so me and her had that kind of fight the condition and then fight for my right of schooling. Yeah. And then my brother over in the other corner was, didn't like loud noises, didn't like going to karate with my father on a Tuesday night because he'd rather be sitting in his room playing video games and drawing. And luckily now he, he actually designs video games. So he, you know, he's a genius in his own little way. Oh gosh, has he read um, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow? Uh, could I? No, I can't get him to read. He's, he's a very... Sort of, if it's not gaming and he's not in a gaming world, I have no chance. I was the okay. one that loved books. So well, I, you should read. You must read tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. It's all about. I, I am. It's on my list because yeah. I just. I just oh, you'll love it. Mary Lou did like a, an entire book where they're in a gaming world. So like half the time they're in reality, and then all of a sudden they put these glasses on and they're sucked into a game. And they feel everything in the game. And it's just like a complete, total sci-fi trip that you go through. And it reminded me so much of him. Yeah, that's <laughs> very like, cool. Well, you'll enjoy Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow as well, yeah. like everyone else have it. Well, it sounds to me like you'll enjoy, you'll enjoy the sibling relationship because it's definitely got that element of the different siblings. And I mean... T- Gosh, we all feel sorry for our parents, don't don't we? Having to yeah. have managed all of us. <laughs> I think because like I'm so glad they stopped at two because I could not imagine more of us. Um, <laughs> because growing up in Shetland, the, the family dynamics was most of the parents of sort of of my mother and father's generation, they had thirteen, eleven. Those were normal numbers wow. of families, and. I can just imagine what it would have been like with me and my brother. I could never imagine if they'd had more of us. I think, I think my mom would have been in a loony bin. I don't. Well, then it wouldn't know. matter. It wouldn't matter whether your child was a sleeper or a non-sleeper. You weren't getting any sleep anyway. No, <laughs> and, and I don't think you know. My father is the most placid, calm person in the world. But even I don't think he would have any hair left at all. <laughs> Because he lost quite a lot of it with me and my brother. <laughs> I think he would be completely bald. And, uh, yeah, he would, he would never have coped. But that's what I love about siblings, because I grew up watching all these different families and how they interacted. Like, my cousin was totally different from me. He had a younger sister. He yearned for the kind of family that I had. And I earned for his. Because his looked normal compared to mine. So I always loved that. And I was always fascinated by family relationships and 
how different family members get on and I think that's why it was the basis of a lot of the characters and stuff I did you, so, you yeah yeah I I just I can't wait to see how yours does and I yeah. I know of many groups of readers that I work with and I interact with that I'll be suggesting uh, suggesting this to and to be honest I when I saw the recommendation that it was similar to lessons in chemistry I did agree with that I was like yes there is that kind of similarity there that I can see and there is a lot of fans out there of that novel so I can see them transitioning to yours without any issues well that would be great I guess the biggest similarity is that Bonnie Garmus deals with chemistry in such a clever way. It's got, yeah. it's never inaccessible. It's totally accessible. It's, it doesn't dominate the book, but it's very much there. So it's like chemistry and family doesn't sound like much of a novel, but it's complete gold dust. It um, is. It is. And right. my novel's got maths in it. And, you know, I can see people wrinkling up their noses. People have a strong relationship with maths. You know, some people really, really hated maths at school. Frankly, I feel the same about chemistry. Um, but hopefully it works. So we'll see. I had a hatred of maths just as I was dyslexic. <laughs> so maths was like, huh? It's like trying to do Russian backwards for as far as I was concerned. Yeah, yeah. I can, Im I can, Im I can imagine. Um and I, I don't, people don't talk about Elizabeth Zott as being neurodiverse at all, but she seems, she seems that she could be neurodiverse to me. And I don't define what arts neurodivergence is in the book. And that's because, yeah. you know, I'm not a doctor and I would never presume to do that, but I, I know him as a character and he is a neuro, some sort of neurodivergent character. Um, yeah. So I think it, it, it has that relatability to lessons in chemistry as well. I like the idea that because there is a lot of people out there who are on different spectrums and I think mm. they feel so underrepresented in novels nowadays because for so long we've always had normally functioning characters and now that we are seeing a rise in more disabled characters being in mainstream publishing and I think that's really good because I think it expands the understanding of everyday people when it comes to people who are slightly different. And I think it breaks down those barriers. And I, I hope and pray and touch wood that we continue to see that because I think it's such an important thing, especially now that we are seeing spectrum growing in our society. And we all know of somebody in our lives who's on the spectrum in one shape or form. We do. Um, and going back to what we were talking about earlier, at the end of the day, whether you live in a different country or your brain functions a bit differently or you, your body is able in a different way to do different things, whatever it is, you speak a different language, whatever, yeah. um, what makes the human heart beat is the same everywhere. Exactly. It is. Mm. We all feel, we all love, we all have jealousy yeah. it, it's just the it's the foundation of who we all are yeah and i think so i agree cover that so perfectly so now we get to talk about books yes and what you've been reading which is always the exciting part so tell me have you read a book recently that stuck with you the most right so i don't know about you but i would normally find that reasonably easy to answer and then in 2022 
I just felt we were so spoiled for choice. There were yep. so many absolute crackers. I kept putting down a book thinking, my God, that was the best book I've ever read. Um, but if I had to pick up something else, yep. Exactly. Um, I mean, Lessons in Chemistry was one of them. But if I had to pick one last year that has stayed with me and not let me go, it would be Glory by No Violet Bulawayo. Oh, it was, okay. It was on the Booker shortlist, which I was yep. thrilled about, and I would have loved it to win. I think it's a masterpiece. I think it should have won too, actually. Did Have you read it? I've not read it. I read the sort of the blurb and I, I have it on my TBR which by the way isn't it is, such a clever concept it is the most amazing concept um but if my TBR gets any bigger it might fall yes. over and kill me and my husband it'll get bigger than you <laughs> I, I stacked it up on the, the bedside table now yes. it's about halfway up my wall <laughs> yeah so like, no eventually you're going to get to the point where it's going to be your partner or the books you know <laughs> yep yep he, he does say that we run a public library in my house. <laughs> yeah. So Glory, I loved. Um, it spoke to the African in me at, at a very visceral level. She, just for listeners, it's it's a story about Zimbabwe. And she tells it like Animal Farm, where the politicians and the population are all, it's, it's all populated by animals. And the politicians are goats and horses and hyenas and actually not hyenas. They're all more domestic animals than that. Yeah. Um, and the population too. And It would have been fun if she used hyenas, to be fair. <laughs> she's, she actually spoke about that in the podcast, about why she didn't use wild animals. They're all domesticated animals because she thought that they were sort of more easily anthropomorphized. And it works yeah. very, very well, just like it does in Animal Farm. It's very clever. Um, it's absolutely skewers what is going on in Zimbabwe. It's utterly, utterly heartbreaking. But it's yeah, also it's very, good. very funny. It's so clever and so funny. And it's written, you can imagine it in a, written slightly in the tradition of oral African storytelling. So it's got yeah. this wonderful, sort of rich, verbal, gymnastic storytelling vibe. And that's what I love about writing. See if you can get a novel that actually captures the everyday conversation, the everyday yes. way that people are. That, to me, is so special. And somehow she and does that by making them talk like animals. I mean, it just exactly, it almost doesn't yeah. make sense. But it's, it's an, and, then, and the main protagonist is, you know, who sits quiet, in a way, sits quite quietly in the middle of this massive story about this, the trauma of the whole country yeah. her central protagonist that story sort of beats away through the whole book in and it's so beautifully done and and so, utterly so utterly when heartbreaking. I see her book then I was reading at the time I saw it I read I was reading Hamilton by Catherine Cookson oh yeah and Catherine blows my mind because she did this entire story about this girl who's disabled but also has the trauma of growing up with an abusive parent and she uses animals as oh, really? these ways and means of escape it was an escapism for the girl so she would imagine this horse doing all these ridiculous things and that was her mentally disassociating from what was going on and the way Catherine tells it is such 
an everyday way that even though it was written way back in the 90s, it fits with today and it really, this was her first attempt at raising mental health issues, it was raising abuse issues, it was raising disabled inequality and it's a trio, it's a trilogy? I think I said that right? Yeah. It's three books. Yeah. And it's so clever how she, you see this girl rebuilding her life after being awful. And what does that mean for her, you know, and people taking advantage of her? And she really does it with such, such creativity with using animals and using kind of that symbolic way of this girl learning to cope and deal with all these issues in her life. And that Very clever way of putting it, actually, that she's mm. dissociating from the painful reality, I guess. To some extent, that is what Novalet Fullaway was doing. She yeah. put the reality at a distance by making it these sort of comic animals. But it, so it you, also hit In a way, you almost can look at it more. Yeah, you could almost look at it for longer. Yeah. And, and therefore, really take it in. The, the way that she does Glory and the way that Catherine did Hamilton was so similar in my mind because it's like. She's dissociating from the absolute hardship and pain that's in her story. Yeah, yeah. By using animals, and then Catherine does the same through Hamilton. Um, so I, I think I like to think Catherine's had an impact on writers all over the world. Um, well, maybe she has. She's just not being credited for it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I I love that. And uh, one of the books, if you ever get a chance um, to read. That she did, which I thought was incredible, is Colorblind. And Colorblind. Okay, well, I'll write that down. With, with Colorblind by well. Catherine was just that. I it was the it was really early in the nineties, and she brought up interracial relationships, but she does it in a first person voice. But you get to it's in the north of England. It's mm -hmm. set in a time where, you know, they're they're very divided and they're very xenophobic and it's like almost she's tackling three things in one novel but yet the way she does it you don't realize that that's what she's done until you close the book and you set it down and then you walk away from it and it hits you it hit me i was walking down the street and i can't remember who my best friend said something to me and it was totally unrelated to the book and then it dawned on me and I remember turning to my best friend and it was totally out of context. And I went, holy crap. And she went, what, what, what? <laughs> so she's, she's looking at her and thinking something bad's happened or something's flown into me or hitting me or something. And I had to explain to her, I'm like, this book, you have to read it. And she hates historical fiction. Um, so the amount of times I'll hand her a book and the first thing she says to me is, is it historical it's fiction? Historical fiction. <laughs> But it was so creatively funny what, done. Funny what we turn to, isn't it? Yeah, but it's so creatively done. She really was the master of character-driven stories without being obvious that that's what it was. And I like, I, I almost sort of can, can see how, especially British writers, or anybody that's studied in Britain, our fingertips are in so many of the great, talented authors that's come out now. Interesting. You can almost pull that from everywhere. And she was so popular in Africa. She was so popular in India. That's where she made her most of her money. 
Oh, really? Was the popular, because they were able to translate the books. Yeah, yeah. And then as soon as it had into India, I think it really pushed buttons in people in India because it was able to really tackle things such as sort of inequality of women, there was arranged marriage topics that she tackled. All the, the topics she went for was right there in her work. And I think that's why it was popular in Africa too, because it was touching and it was moving to people through every walk of life. Yeah, I suppose that's ultimately, that's our ultimate aim, isn't it? Yeah, so yeah. I, I would recommend checking her out, because if you really oh, well. need characters in, in siblings and family, she really honestly does it justice. I've written, I've written it down. No, um, so yeah, I always, when I find somebody that appreciates it, yeah. Um, so who would you say has inspired you and made you excited about writing and being? Like, who's the one author that you would say, past and present, this person's influenced, this person's inspired me, and this person's made me excited? Three different people. You get three different people to choose from, so yeah. Okay, okay. So, inspired me, I would say, I go quite a long way back, and the book and author that's most inspired me, I would actually say, is William Boyd. I really remember reading Brazzaville Beach all those years ago, and he had the mathematician John married to Hope Clearwater, the the scientist, and they head off, and they, she goes to live in the Congo because the marriage has failed. And it's an incredible love story, story about her finding herself, her looking back on what's gone wrong in her life. So it's really a, a very character-driven human story. But I remember feeling at the end that what I'd loved about it was I'd been gripped by the, the characters and the humanity, but that there'd also been this thread of the science and all the sort of juicy things that I'd learned along the way. And I'd really enjoyed that. And I, until that moment, I couldn't remember a book that had done that. And then I started, I sought those books out. There are not that many of them, but there, there's, you learn about all sorts of different things in books, be it historical exactly, or, yeah. you know, medicine or whatever it is. Um, and very often just culture. But I quite like that sort of slightly nerdy sciencey stuff. And so when I was looking back to what books influenced mine, I would say probably that seed was sown by William Boyd and Brazzaville Beach. Um, influenced me, I would say George Saunders, who um, whose short stories I absolutely love. I actually found Lincoln on the Bardo quite, quite... Um, I didn't love it as much as I love his short stories, which I adore. And because I adore his short stories so much, I picked up a book called Swimming in the Pond in the Rain. Have you, have you come across it? I've heard of it. I just haven't tried it. It's about writing. It's about writing. He tackles, I think, six or seven Russian short stories. Yeah. And I've read a bit of Russian literature and I've read, you know, Russian literatures um, can be quite hard to get through. So yeah, yeah. And these are Russian short stories. There's Chekhov and Tolstoy and Tuganov and um, Gogol. And famous he, one he, is uh, I think Crime and Punishment is one that everybody seems to name. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. 
That was um, big in its youth. Those are all massive. So luckily, this book is about the short stories. He takes he takes each short each short story that he chooses, and he really analyzes it very very carefully and forensically about why it works. Yeah. And he's talking to you as a writer about these stories, and he teaches you how to use his technique for editing your own work. Wow. I am gonna have to do, I'm gonna have to read that. I'll have to get It's incredible and, and it taught me a new way of sort of almost listening to my own work and how to edit it. It really it, it was a step change in how in my ability to hear or to read whether something was working that I had written myself. So that was definitely the book that influenced me the most. And so what was the last one? Excited me. Excited, yeah, like who just makes you have to go to the shelf and see, hey, I've got to read this person, or this is my go-to when I need that excitement, that rush to pick oh, okay. up so, um, when I So when you when like a new book comes out and you're just so excited. I, I love Elizabeth Strout's books, so the Lucy Barton series. Yeah. Um, I... I love I love all of her books. Um, her writing is so spare and so deceptively simple that she goes like right to the bone, the absolute bone of difficult feelings. And she gets under the skin of those uncomfortable feelings we have and why we have them. Yeah. You know, when we're feeling mean or petty or small-minded, she, she somehow gets to the sort of beating heart of the serious thing that makes you feel those things. Um, that's, that's and I, really I love those reading, books. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I love those books. So when you go to a bookshop, yeah, where are you drawn to? Like, what's the first place you find yourself? So I, oh, I would it say could be genre. My left be... hand or my right hand? <laughs> can I? Can I have two? <laughs> you can have two if you want. Yeah. Um, I had one I, that just said the entire shop. So oh, I know. You're okay. I really I enjoy contemporary American fiction a lot. Okay. Uh, I I always read reviews of what's coming out there, and I I find myself often I you know pick up the latest book I'm dying to read, and yep, yet again it's contemporary American author. Yeah. Um, I think there's something exciting about what's going on in literature there. Yeah. Um, and I really like African fiction, so be it Zimbabwean or Nigerian or South African. Um, I I loved My Sister is a Serial Killer. My I was going to say that. Raid. I was going to ask you if you'd read that because I did. I had the I had the opportunity to read that. Uh, yeah. Sent it by the publisher, and I was just blown. It's such away an outrageous book. I actually I generally like books about like nice decent people. You know, I sort of I like Anne Patchett books that are gripping narratives about nice people. But that book about this terrible sister, I just loved it. I thought I just it was felt riveting. So sorry for it the whole way through. I was like, oh girl. Oh I know. It was it was so outrageous, the whole premise. But I also loved its Africanness. Yeah. I just felt just I could feel like I was in Africa. I could I could I see well, yeah. the amazing design, uh, the color, the um, the way people speak to one another, the the fluidity of human relationships. I just, I just, I, it felt wonderfully African. So I loved, I loved that about it too. I thought, I thought she was a really exciting 
new voice. I'm dying to see what she writes next. So those are the two places I go to, I would say, most. Um, um, it's funny you say that, because I had an author on for Valentine's Day called yeah. Holly Williams, and she's just released What Time Is Love? And it is an um, honestly feels like an American story. It really does. But yeah. it takes it takes relationships and it takes well, what would this relationship be like in these three different periods of time all right and what would be the effect of society on um, on these three actually i think i've heard i've heard of her so she does the same it's the same couple right written yeah. three different times okay yeah yeah and, it, and honestly i was i had her on i was blown away by it i thought this is so unique it's so character driven that's very clever but in such different time zones. So yeah. I was going to recommend her to you because I, I think there's a uniqueness there. It's just, it takes you to a whole different world. Every time, like every time you get to a new part of the book, you're, it's like going into a brand new world. Every time. Yeah, well, I suppose literally it is because relationships will, will, will be so different in each time zone. Yeah. That she, yeah. she chooses to, to plant them in. Yeah, she, could keep going, thought, she could keep going with them for a very long time. <laughs> yeah, but it was, it was, and I don't think she is doing another one, but yeah. I just thought it was so unique. Um, and I thought you two would be just ideal if you switched books, you know, like if you could oh, do book club and just swap them over. I think, yeah, yeah. I think, you know, it would be such a great story. And the other one I got was um, in a New York minute. It's yeah. not really the traditional rom-com. It is about a woman and a man, and they end up in this very sort of sticky situation. Yeah. But it's funny, and it's such a light-hearted read. And it's not very long. It's a, it's, it's, it's a good short, short read. And I always say it's a good palate cleanser. Yeah. When you're, <laughs> you're going from one really great book, you just need like a little cleanse to, to appreciate the next one. Um, I think it's only like 390 pages and it's quick that it's such a fast paced novel but the, the depth that's there is just amazing um, so yeah but when you were talking about African novels and you were talking about just being transported there I always think of Leslie Pierce because she did a, she did The Gypsy which transfers you from being these orphan two kids who go to America mm. and it's early day America so they, they have to make their way from New York to Oregon and the loss that she goes through and the trouble she goes through I couldn't put it down I thought I'd hate it I thought I wouldn't be able to read it I will, I just ended what up What is the time, when is it set? It's set right as New York is being developed Oh, okay. right at the beginning of colonial yeah. times and, you know, she's come from England. She has nothing. She just has her brother. She just wants to make a life and nothing goes to plan. And the only possession she ends, she has in the world is this fiddle. And that plays such a crucial role through the entire story. She's got herself really, a, good plot, a good plot device. It is. And it, yeah. but it's the, the journey of the woman herself. So you get to see this woman go from being such a young girl totally naive to becoming a woman and, and what that means during that time 
and yeah. she doesn't have women equality in this time there's none of that but it's and she's a in a new pl- and she's in a new place like we were talking about earlier yeah. she's she's been transplanted I think I think when you read it, you'll see the trans you'll see the transformation, but you'll also get to see this entire world and have that out of fish experience, you know, fish out of water experience. I should say, um, it it was a cracking read, and Survivors the other one is an amazing, amazing, such a moving story that she did. I just. It, you you're all constantly thinking about it when you've put it down and you've gone to bed yeah you can't stop thinking about it there's nothing it's better is there no there's not <clears throat> so those ones are i would say would be are, you would just fall in love with them they they're such a nice kind of change of scenery well thank you so moving into writing yeah how did you go about sort of creating that that element of darkness that element of i would like to say sort of danger but it's not really danger if you know what i mean like that kind of it's definitely a dark there's a darker side to the book for sure there is um was it a frame of mind you had to get into did you have to use sensory did you how did you go about really tapping into that I think in some ways it was it felt quite organic. So when I was writing Mimi's character, she actually sort of surprised me that I would be writing the backstory, sometimes stuff that would make its way into the manuscript, sometimes stuff that actually didn't, material that I was, scenes that I'd write almost to get to know her. And she, she became a slightly edgier, more difficult creature than I had first envisioned um, because I had sort of fallen in love with her by then. But turns out that she was actually as you know but attention seeking and irritating and selfish and um she had a sort of quite mean jealous streak in her as a child and that was in response to the family environment that she found herself in of course yeah and that that happened quite naturally that as i was writing her there was that side of her um that made her quite difficult and I wouldn't describe it necessarily as dark, but it, that that shadow side of of Mimi happened quite organically. But the the other the other some of the other darkness, I had to work on a bit harder. For example, yeah. Frank, who's her love interest, who who started out as this unbelievably almost too good to be true guy, and that's as really they what all do. Yep. as they all do. Exactly, um, and you know, there he was, and. And then things change and develop. And that didn't happen so organically. And I had to work hard at figuring out what aspects of his personality could realistically become potentially darker, more suspicious from the outside, look like they might not be real. There had to be a side of Frank that had certainly dark potential in order to make the story work and and so i took the bits of him that were already there he's he's very casual you know art is the brother is so meticulous and careful and considered and and frank is sort of casual and relaxed and easy come easy go don't worry about it and i had to take that side of his character and think okay if you take that slightly more to extreme, what, what would that mean? Is that then somebody who's prepared to cut corners? Are they prepared to 
cheat and lie in order to cut corners you know what so I had to take the bits of his character that I actually quite liked and find their shadow their shadow self um and then in terms of the actual story and there's quite dark things that happen it it's quite a strange phenomenon I'm, I'm sure you've experienced this yourself that you'll be writing something and it will take a weirdly dark turn and and you're not even sure why and you're suddenly writing into a place of difficulty for your characters and you feeling for them because you're putting them somewhere very unpleasant and for, for me, you don't always know why for for me when it comes to sort of having to do darkness i can use maureen's world as a great example um i will organize the copy and send you but for maureen's yeah. world i had a friend who played a dark wrestling character his entire life and he's the nicest OCD guy in the world yeah and I I hated the idea that that was how he was seen and he actually inspired the character that is kind of the villain through her entire world that's interesting and it's the pushing drive of that darkness through her how did your friend do that how did your friend get into that mindset he tapped into his childhood and it was very much of, you know, he had an ego and he was very much into that. Like, mm. he loves looking at brain chemistry. And he is a Mensa guy. So he used oh, wow. to read people. That was, what, that was what made him so good, was he yeah. could read people. And he still can, and it drives me absolutely crazy in a conversation with him. Because I know he's reading me. Even though we're texting, I know he's, he's reading my every word. And he would just lock, lock himself into this dark spot in his mind. Yeah. And, you know, the person, he called himself Raven. And the person Raven was who he wrestled as. And then when he got home and he closed that door, he had to be Scott. So there was a very much a divide. And it was almost yeah. like he split his personality in two. And I, when I came to write Marie's World, I was like, well, what would it be like to split yourself in two the way he did? And I used a lot of, I mean, I'm, I'm in university, so I'm learning creative writing. And I started really tapping into sensory and into psych and into all these areas that he had talked about in interviews and all, you know, all the different things he was doing. And he really was that driving force of me to say, well, if I was a bit of a sociopath, how would I do this? Like, yeah. you know, if I'm not, you know, I don't realize I'm a sociopath, how would I, how would I operate? Um, and a lot of the time, his character really touched a baseline of sometimes he was psychotic, sometimes he was sociopath. It was like he couldn't make up his mind which of the field he was going into. And he really that kind of inspired that willingness to well let's push it let's see how far i can push this mm. And, mm. and get away with it and luckily for me my co-author is a very sensible down to earth you know say, hang on me, come, come back here <laughs> yeah doesn't let me drive off the cliff kind of person <laughs> um so i was lucky i had a bungee cord that's how i looked on it yeah, yeah. So I would write a chapter and he would bun he would just lift the bungee cord around my feet and say, Right, okay, you're coming over the end. Let's just <laughs> let's just take you back a bit. 
Because if we do that, we can't continue the story in the way that you want. <laughs> the character's <to>. gone. <laughs> yeah, you've, you've just completely obliterated our entire plan. Yeah. And he was really good at just reeling me in. And I think for a series that was as dark as Marie's in regards of she's the villain in Layla's story, Layla's not the villain in hers. And it was like, well, who could be the villain in Marie's world? And that's when I came up with the idea of, well, if she married her father's boss, who was his best friend, to protect the family, what better villain could that be? Um, however, my friend wishes I hadn't called him Harold. <laughs> he, took a, he took a really big objection to the name, which I thought well. was hilarious. He knew it was he's named like, after him. <laughs> he's like, really? Of all the names you could have chosen, Harold is what you gave it? I was like, well, Harold seemed like a good villain name to me. So Why not? I went, it's a good Viking name. <laughs> you know, and that was kind of how I got into the darkness. But I, I would lock myself away. My husband hates this. He knows when I'm writing a dark sort of part because I will close the curtains, I put the candles on, I have that dirty, grimy kind of atmosphere around me and I'll play that kind of music and it locks me into that frame of mind and it's almost like permission yeah. to just explore. And then, it, you know, my co-author is kind of like the person that opens the curtains and blows the candles out and says... Unlike time. Yep, like, stop, pull back, stop jumping yeah. off the cliff, you know, let, let's, let's... And you do have to, and also you do have to know when... Yeah. when to pull back, when it's too much, what your story demands. Some stories can't take the level of darkness. No. And Finding that balance and, and is very important. You know, yeah. That was what was so brilliant about Back to My Sister. You know, is a, Actually, it's called My Sister's a Serial Killer. My Sister yeah. is a Serial Killer. Um, was the, how she handled that darkness. Anyway, interesting. I yeah. thought it was brilliant. I thought just the balancing out she did. I mean, I'm lucky I have a co-author who kind of reels me in. Did your editor, was your editor kind of like your balancer in a way, like to help you kind of get that perfect balance? We definitely had conversations around those darker moments in the book yeah. um, about whether they might be, you know, whether they were too much or whether they were just right. There was definitely the Goldilocks moment of checking to see how hot the porridge was. Yeah, um, everyone has to do that. Yeah, and <laughs> that was with that was with my my editors. Yes, we did have those conversations, but they were they were always constructive. So that's I, I like those I, I like those collaborative conversations. They're always fun. I love that too because working with an editor who you can absolutely trust, I think, is essential for this job because yeah. writing isn't just a job. It's like we create these these stories and it's like we carry them and then you know by writing them down it's like giving birth to them and bringing them out into the world so exactly. you're almost kind of like having to trust somebody in that process yeah and it's really that, nice to have somebody else there alongside you yeah. otherwise it's incredibly lonely it is incredibly lonely and the amount of times my husband will say to me you do realize i'm here and the car is not just driving itself <laughs> because I'll I'll take a notebook with me or I'll take a book with me and I just disappear 
and he kind of almost has to be that reminder of hey there's a world outside out you know um and I, I am terrible for that i am i i think a lot of us writers sometimes we get so fixated on what we're doing that we forget that there's an entire universe outside of Absolutely. our you know our notepads or our computers and our books mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um so i think it's really important and sometimes to have that support level is really good so how did you go choosing the genre you wrote? Was there a process to you deciding, I want to write a book, but it's going to be in this genre? Or was it a case of you wrote the book and then you were like, ah, I need to figure out which genre it fits? Um, I never thought about a genre for one second um, yeah, while I, I was writing. And I think that's probably why in the end, then there was a bit of a discussion about, okay, where does this book fit in? Yeah. Um, and when I first submitted it to agents, that you know, I was writing the submission letter and I was getting advice from people about what to say, and that wasn't a straightforward decision. You know, where where does it fit in? I I think it's quite easy because I think it is straightforward book club fiction, yeah. um, and I think that now is a genre that. It is a genre. It's a recognized. Right? Yeah. It is a recognized genre. And actually, you asked me earlier what genre I go for in a book club, bookshop. It would it would be that sort of accessible literary fiction. Yeah. Um, some people just call it fiction as well. Some that's, people just that's call it fiction. Debate, yeah, yeah, exactly. So I'm not. I'm really, as we discussed earlier, we, I like many genres. I'm not genre. It, it wasn't a conversation I ever had with myself. No, and I, I think it's difficult because some authors will pick a genre and then they will go for just specifically that genre well i think I if, you, if you are yeah if you are going to be a, a dedicated classic writer of a classic genre yeah. then then your readers do have certain expectations and you sort of have to hit them yeah um but if i like didn't know about that at all and we just write what we were passionate about and we love it's almost like a scramble at the end to try and figure out, okay, this is a really what good story, it? but where does it fit? Like, yeah. where am I going to shove it? <laughs> you know, and, and I think it's it's such, um, it opens everybody's eyes to realize that we all work in different ways. Wait. Writers are not just pushed into a certain role and that's it, you know. And I, I, I kind of argue with my lecture about this because they go on about, oh, you know, if you're writing poetry, you have to, to be, you know, in a certain set of rules. And I'm like, but writers don't write in rules. We write what comes to us, what we're passionate about, what we love. And he, I think he hates me a little bit because <laughs> I, <laughs> I argue this point every time. But it is true because if you look at the profession nowadays, we aren't scripted to one set of styles and i think the more that there's authors like you and me who write just the story and then we figure everything else out later we're getting much more rounder and deeper perspectives and i think we're starting to see the readers responding to that it's very interesting isn't it i mean rules rules can also be give you incredible freedom because they can give you this wonderful structure and then you go mad from there and yes. you actually know where you're anchored so I think that they can they can work both ways. They can constrain you, but they can also liberate you. I can imagine being given a set of restraints or constraints rather, um, 
I'm being told here are your constraints now go for it and finding that rather comforting I mean you look at somebody like Stephen King who he's he writes I imagine there are some rules underpinning what he's written but his imagination goes completely mad and in a wonderful genius way the rules are there I think rules can work yeah, they can constructively work as, well, as well depends on your mood yeah okay will we ever see you do that do you think you'll ever take on just one genre and say right i'm gonna go for this and see what happens i don't have that idea in my head of something i'm planning on doing but as you put it that would be an interesting challenge wouldn't it it would be an interesting exercise okay take this yeah, well, I, you did. I have and... taken it on now myself, and because, like, I think. For Sorry, me, you can I hear my bird. You can hear my bird clock tweeting in the background. Oh, don't worry about that. I've got cats running around, so <laughs> you'll hear a bell occasionally. But no, like for me, I I wanted to write historical, and I focused in on that, and I was like, well, what does it take to do an actual historical? Yeah. Because I had such a powerful story to tell for Shetland. And for the Shetland people who've given their lives to, to rescue Norwegians and rescue people from South mm. Africa, from Nazis that were, were, were going to kill them, were going to totally wipe them out. So I had this incredible story about every normal day people taking their fishing boats and their yachts and their sailing boats and rescuing people and rescuing people from the North Sea. Um, but then I realized that's a historical and I am really constrained to what that means how do i, I think what's great thing? about that is you learned you probably learned a whole new skill you know you by <clears throat> by committing yourself to something that does have rules you have to learn the rules and that's that's interesting i think all the years of, of reading catherine and reading all her kind of influences prepared me for it but at the same yeah. time if it wasn't a story i was wasn't so passionate about i probably wouldn't have written it yeah um but yeah, I, I have found the rules slightly more challenging than I was anticipating. Yeah. yeah. So with I you, can believe that. you put your book together, was it like a jigsaw puzzle for you or was it more movie-like where you were writing the scenes as you were seeing them? It was without question like a jigsaw puzzle. It's got yeah. quite an intricate plot. There are lots of different pieces, lots of different moving parts and it was it was hard. To get my structure right that was the thing i struggled with the most was getting the structure right getting the time periods in the right I had diff different time periods to deal with i had five days five sort of missing days to deal with where the character who the only person who knew what had happened couldn't yeah. tell us um so the structure was very very hard and it was exactly like a puzzle but i i think there was probably that moment and again, this is only retrospectively. I didn't probably realize it at the time. But suddenly the puzzle was finished and I could look at it and it had an actual picture. And now I think it would make a great movie. <laughs> I think it would too. I, I will, if I come across any producers or that, I'll be recommending it, definitely. But for me, like, I know if it's a jigsaw puzzle situation, do you use like... A board so you can see it as it goes or how did you go about sort of putting the pieces together oh my goodness i wish i could show you my desk um, <laughs> i'm the same hmm. if only you could see the, the the notes and the pads of paper oh yeah index cards post-it notes longhand 
you honestly, if you you saw it, it looks like a crime scene. Yeah, that is how There's my sister looked. Many different it. ways of trying to work out the different pieces of the jigsaw and how they should fit together, and some of the ways of working out were actually pretty laboured, where I would write the whole underneath architecture out and figure out what pieces of information we had where, where they were planted, where they needed to be planted, where they were being revealed, etc. You know, very sort of meticulous planning. And then sometimes, and, and then I'd be able to see, ah, oh, okay. And then sometimes it was an in the shower moment. Like, ah, oh, okay. Yeah. I can see yeah. how that piece gets fixed. I used to keep a notebook outside the shower. Very good like, idea. Somebody needs to invent like, pencil that you can write on the shower wall. Yeah, Definitely. and then... I had, remember when you had the old box screens, computer box screens? Yeah, yeah. I used to stick the sticky notes around the computer screen to the corner. It looked like a hedgehog. Like a hedgehog, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that was how I did it. But now I have a laptop because I have to go into the hospital so often. I can't mm. stick it to the laptop screen. They don't stick. No, they don't. No, laptops so are hopeless for posters. Yeah, and it's, it's a nightmare because it's like, I go into the hospital and they, and I'm right in the hospital. I always have written in hospital. And when I was in last time and I was writing, the nurse said to me, did you murder something in here? Because when she'd come in, I had like this, you, you have a single table and I, the computer was in the middle and I had a pile of notepads on one side and another pile of notepads on the other. And then I had sticky notes kind of sticking out through them. And I went, you know, I'm lying there super ill and they're like, you really shouldn't be writing it. I'm like, I can't sleep. And I did no, a hundred exactly. thousand words of Cerise. It, oh, wow. Wow. That's, that is a, lot of, that's a lot of not sleeping. Yeah, that was a, not a lot of sleeping. And I'm sorry. They would, they would literally say to me, do you not think you should take a break? It was that bad. I actually wore the, the letters of my keys out. So now I have a separate, <laughs> separate keyboard just for that, because it's awful. And my my husband laughs at me. He's like, "I should get you a desktop again, because at least that way you can turn it off and walk away, and then you're not taking it into the bedroom and you're not typing at two, three o'clock in the morning, driving me crazy." Yeah, tick tack, tick tack, tick tack on that. I think we've all done that though. We've all been on a deadline and we've just been like, "Right, okay, well, let's get it done," and just yeah. Right into the night. human partners crazy so exactly. which character of your writing would you say has stuck with you the most or the longest I would say the brother Art he's oh, okay. the trickiest he isn't necessarily the most likable or comfortable at the beginning but he got you under my skin him. he got under my skin yeah. yeah, we all have one of those that just yeah. So it's, it's for me because I haven't finished Marie's World, which is thirty-two books, and I'm on book oh. six. I know, oh. like, what on earth was I thinking of? What were you thinking? Books? I know, right? No, I've and, got, I, I'm I'm finished with these characters. I'm not going to write about them again. <laughs> I don't think. For me, I if I go write something else, and he gets it in his mind that he wants attention, it's like a child. He wants attention. I have to stop writing whatever it is I'm writing and go work on whatever it is he's telling me. And so I, I think all of us has that character that will just keep coming back. 
until you finish whatever they're trying to tell you. Tell you, um, yeah. He's two books in now, and he's still not gone away. Yeah, it, they do. They do sit in your head, don't they? For sure. Yes, I, no. I'm at that point where I want to strangle him. Because <laughs> I want to go write other things. I do. You not can always do that. You can always strangle. You can strangle him in the book. That would sort him yes, out. Yes, it, it is coming. I've I've hit him with a chair so far. So you know. Maybe maybe something else will uh, come along. Yeah, well, you'll have to see what happens to Art. <laughs> I I will definitely. I'm I'm so excited to read this, honestly. So, what's the first thing you do in your life to de-stress from writing and editing? Because we all know that writing and sort of editing can get stressful. So, what do you do to try to sort of prevent burnout? To kind of well, just the very the very first thing I do in any stressful situation is have a cup of tea immediately girl after my own heart <laughs> i also I have it before the stressful situation even occurs so i've always just had a cup of tea and i'm always about to have another one um yeah. i think that's so then... british though too if you think about it <laughs> yeah I mean, i've lived here long like, enough yeah it, like in britain as soon as it as soon as anything happens the first thing everybody says is right i'll put the kettle on yeah always like, I'll do it. yeah um and otherwise i would i would go outside i I think that to process something difficult in the writing, I need to move. Yeah. I find I don't, I don't, the one place I honestly don't solve tricky, puzzly problems is sitting on my bottom. No. Um, I need to move. I need to go and do something else. I need to walk. I need to walk or run. Um, yeah. And I think that's also why problems get solved in the shower because you're moving around. Yeah, and you're um, kind of, icing in the shower yeah oh well so i think it's Even just doing other things kind of yeah frees it up and, and gets out your mind the de-stressing yeah move that's how i would de-stress de not you... sitting on the not sitting on the sofa watching tv which i do do as well by the way yeah i do that too i can't yeah. i can't deny that what hobbies do you enjoy and are there ones you wish you could explore um i like lots of different sports i i, I love just being outside walking um what do I? What would I like to do more of? I'd like to do more of painting and drawing, and I'd love to take up ceramics again. Um, wow. I really, I really love working with ceramics, but I tend not to do that much crafty stuff anymore because I feel like I spend enough time on my bottom. Yeah. And so I. Ceramics, though, that's that's an expertise in itself, to be honest. Yeah, there. It's. I lived in Japan for a while, as as you know. Yeah. And. I already had done a bit of ceramics and I, I fell deeply in love with it there. And there again, it's back to that conversation we've been having about discipline. I mean, there, there are rules. You're not allowed to make something until you've made a certain kind of teacup. And then, then you're allowed to make a teacup with the foot and then a teacup with the handle. And it's not like here's a lump of clay, go and do your, don't go and do your worst. Um, but I love that. But I, I love that. Rules about Japan because I think it, it they have such good discipline yeah. too that I think it's installed in such a young age and I, I love that. And I think I fell in love with the idea of going there because I'm like, they would understand my very strict scheduling and understand why I'm so dedicated and why I have to have time zones. And, you know, like, I think, yeah, I would love that. I would love to be able to just feel like I'm a part of that group of people. Yeah. And then on, you know, having, 
underpinned everything with, with that discipline. They also had this fantastic, crazy imagination. Yeah. Um, and anyway, so yeah, that's... Which makes them, actually, I would love to see more books coming out of Japan, to be honest. I think some of the stories, if they could really explore them, mm. could be absolutely game-changing for everyone. I agree. I love David Mitchell's work and Ruth Ozeki and... Um, yeah, and, and lots of Japanese writers too. Uh, it's it's yeah. fantastic, whole fantastic universe of, of literature. I agree. It, yeah, it is. So I myself am a long-term mumness, so it makes me slow down and appreciate death. What makes you sort of stop and smell the roses? What makes me stop and smell the roses? I think what helps... We all have to enjoy the world, don't we? We do. Uh, the thing that helps me stop and smell the roses would be sunshine. I find sunshine a very calming thing. It it makes it does make me put my shoulders back and lift my head up and look around me. Things look better and feel better. So I would say sunshine. Exactly. Yeah. And I, it's so funny you say that because here in Britain, sunshine's like the one thing we all yeah, like I know. so much. But when I it comes, really... I really appreciate it. And I, I look around and I think, yeah, you know what? Everything's actually okay. If you ever go to Shetland during the summer months, it never gets dark. Oh, and wow. And it's like having endless sunshine for the whole summer. And you see so much of the northern lights up there because it's, oh, wow. it's so rural. But the downside is during the winter, we have such a little amount of sunlight and a little amount of daylight. It's awful. It is absolutely awful. And there's so many people up there that suffer from SAD because of it yeah so when i went to la i kind of got overdosed in vitamin d because the sun was there every single day i was like oh this is amazing that i'm like running around it is, totally that would be amazing i i i can completely understand that the sunshine yeah sunshine i think i probably find it harder to work when it's sunny because yeah. it makes me want to literally as you've described it get up go outside smell the roses yeah, and for me, like, I loved riding in L.A. because I liked sitting out in the sunshine, being nice and warm, having the sun on my face. Okay, I couldn't see the screen very well, but that didn't no, exactly. <laughs> I was just blown away by it. And mm. my, fortunately, my husband is from Glasgow. He didn't do so well in the heat and the sun, but it was such an ex amazing experience that, yeah, amazing. I miss it. It was 2016 I went. I have to go back, <laughs> get some sun. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's, I love sunshine too. I think it's, it's such an important thing for all of us. Yeah. Where's your favorite place to curl up during the day? If, do you have like a garden you like to go to, a cafe, a reader's group? Where is it you like to go? Curl up during the day. So I'm not a, I'm not much of a curl up person. I'm sort of, I've slightly got ants in my pants and, and I'm a bit more restless. Yeah, and I think sorry, because I spend I so much time in my chair, I, um, I don't generally, but but I, my favorite curling up sort of thing is when I'm on holiday, my absolute treat is to have an afternoon nap, to sleep in the middle of the day, with a, go to sleep with a book, with a blanket over me on my bed. Oh, so not in a sun lounger in the baking heat, not, not sitting in an easy chair, on my bed in the middle of the day with a book and a blanket. That is heaven. I will give you that. Yeah, that is, that heaven. is heaven for me. Uh, I actually did more reading sitting outside in the sun in LA than I think I've ever done just because we, we were waiting for a friend of mine to pick us up 
and we just it was just this beautiful Japanese garden they created oh, and yeah. the fireflies and the dragonflies and everything was just flying around and it was so calming and soothing it, that's been my ultimate favourite place to just let go and breathe and read for a bit and then drop off yeah I did I did doze off actually nothing better nudging me (laughs) like wake up (laughs) so we're on the word game which means you submit the podcast yeah this is just a little bit of fun so the first book that you think of is the you know just say uh if you get stuck don't worry I have a whole pile of recommendations that we can dive into so your first word is skyscraper Skyscraper. Oh, very unfashionably, I'd have to say Ayn Rand's Fountainhead. Didn't wasn't that about an architect who who yeah, built skyscrapers? Yeah. yeah. How about luxuries? Luxuries. Oh, Oliver Twist. That he he lands like in that, that house and and it seems unbelievably luxurious. What about hotels? Because there's so many good books on hotels, right? Hotel. Oh. I want to say Hotel du Lac by Anita Bruckner. I haven't thought of that book for a very long time. But that's Otherwise, the great thing about this gate. It brings yeah. back things that you yeah. go, oh, I haven't thought of that in a really long time. And, and the, new, the Hotel New Hampshire by John Irving. Yeah, those are two really good ones, actually. Yeah. What about Fine Dining? Oh, um, A Gentleman in Moscow by Amor Tolls. He okay. lives, lives, in a, lives in a hotel, so he could also be a hotel book. And he has an incredible fine dining meal every night of his life because he's confined to this hotel. Oh, wow. That, that sounds like a little bit of heaven. <laughs> what about <laughs> cocktails? Oh, James Bond. In Fleming's books. <laughs> yep, yep. I understand <laughs> that one well. What about high heels? High heels. Oh, all I can think of is a red high heel on the front page of a book, and those are my least favorite books. Um, the Devil so Wears Prada. I'll tell you a recommendation. Is... One, one minute in New York. One oh, yes. Minute, oh, yes. your recommendation. Okay, yeah. done. Done. Yeah. I'll take that one. Yeah, that's a good one. How about designer clothes? Designer clothes. I can I tie that one back to this, uh, my sister, the serial killer, because she steals clothes. She does. She she does have those beautiful designer clothes, doesn't she? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's put that one in. Good. Good I, idea. I think that I think that one's a cracking one for that one. What about yeah. pleats, as in you would pleat your hair? Oh, weirdly, when when you said pleats, I'm, I, I suddenly imagined instead of pleats material. Which would normally take me down the Japanese isimiyaki kind of route. I'm thinking of a pleated story, like a story that folds into itself. And oh, wow. I'm thinking of a book yeah. called Asymmetry. Did you read that? I've heard of that one. Where one story kind of pleats into the next, kind of yeah, folds back they all down. Tie together. Very yeah. clever. Yeah, yeah that's my like pleated that. story. What about velvet? Oh, national velvet. Oh, I really haven't thought of that for a long time either. Do you know another good one is uh, Tipping the Velvet by Sarah Waters. Oh, I've read that. Wonderful. I watched book. it first and then I read it and I was like, oh. I love her writing. <laughs> her love writing, her is, writing. Is, is amazing. And again, yeah. there's somebody else who, who pushes the envelope. Yeah. What about Satin? 
Saturn. Oh, so uh, funny enough, I said I think somebody whose words are as smooth as Saturn. Yeah, that's a, a writer one. who I find very easy to read, and that actually brings me back to the beginning where I said William Boyd was one of my first inspirations. I find his writing very smooth and very easy to read; it just flows like water, like Saturn. <laughs> See, I think of the the. I think it's the velvet gown by Catherine Cookson and it is literally the story about this girl in this dress and it just sort of it's like a whirlwind kind of experience so yeah I think of that one and I also think of the moth by Catherine Cookson because that was again a, a girl from poverty ending up in the world of of luxury kind of to her and, and okay. that transition and the Yes, I suppose I gave you I gave you an author. I didn't give you an actual book, did I? That's Cause... okay. Hey, it's, yeah. it's, it's all about the recommendations at this point. Well, you survived the podcast. <laughs> Thank See, you. It was totally that was so painless. much. That was so much fun. Well, that, that's, Thank you very that's very much. Yeah. So no, that was honestly is and interesting and yeah, we've covered a lot of ground. Yeah. So I can't wait to have you back. So please tell your publisher next time you've got one coming out. I want to be the first on your media tour because I absolutely adored you. Next time we'll focus more on sort of taking apart books and different things. This is a get to know you episode, which I think yeah. fans will absolutely adore. And it will be out on the day your book's released. Oh, wow. On the on the um, UK publication date. Yeah, I think it's the 16th. Yes, it is. Yes, it 16th is. of March this will come out. Yeah. And uh, I know all the fans will be really excited because that will mean we will be hitting our 60 episode. Uh, wow, this is the 60th, this is number 60? 60th I've recorded, yeah. Oh, wow. That's yeah. good. Well, it's, I, I like to be a good number. Yeah, that's well, important. You've got a good number, yeah. Because <laughs> I've just done, uh, my 53rd came out today, which was with Chris Lloyd, who's the uh, winner of the Historical Writing Award. So he came out today. Oh, well, well, congratulations. That's quite something, 60. I mean, that's, um, and is it, it's one a week, is it? I have done one a week and sometimes three will come out, sometimes four comes out. Depends if I have special requests from uh, publishers that come in. And anybody Amazing. that's not being requested by an author will come out weekly. So, yeah, we've, we've done a lot this month. We've had a lot come out this month. Um, we did special Valentine's Day celebrations and then... 50th celebration so it's been a lot of fun uh never expected it to take off quite like this so it's been yeah it's been a lot of fun well well done and thank you thank you very much for having me and making it incredibly easy and warm and friendly and enjoyable well that, that's what i hope because i know as an author there's nothing worse than doing media we all dread it and i thought well if i can offer a show that's a little bit of fun then that i've done my job so um yeah guys you'll want to check in next week as we've got another bestseller coming on and they have some quite interesting stories you're not going to want to miss hearing so check back with us on monday and uh let's have some fun <laughs>